So we're talking about the series, I Speak Jesus, and we're going to pick up in the book of Philippians. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, you can turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. And uh, chapter 3, we'll read in verse 17, Philippians chapter 3, this is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the, the church in Philippi. And there are a lot of parallels. I wouldn't begin to compare what we're dealing with today with um, what Christians in those days were dealing with, but there are a lot of parallels in terms of the society that they were living in and the kinds of pressures that, that, that were coming at them and the temptation to succumb to those pressures. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17 says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, get around community where you're seeing what you want modeled. There's a whole message in that. For just as I've often told you, and now I tell you again, even with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, it's a lot in that, but I want to speak on this idea for the next few minutes, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, spiritual natives. If you want to take notes, you can write down the title, spiritual natives. Uh, Wherever you're at, though, would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes and would you uh, pray with me? And let's ask the Holy Spirit to challenge, to, to confront, and to encourage, and to lift, and to motivate, and to change us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for just who you are. We thank you that you are Jireh, that you are enough, God, that you are everything that we need and then some. God, that you are all that we need in this life. God, that you are hope for the next God, we pray that we'd be the kind of people who uh, we, we see the kingdom at, at work today, that we'd not be the kind of people who are simply and only waiting for what is to come, but God, that we would eagerly hope for that and bring that into the current days that we are living in. We thank you, God, that though the darkness is dark, the light is bright when the dark is dark, so we thank you that you put us here for such a time as this. We love you. We give you this day. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. Now, um, this is a younger service in comparison to the first service, but I have a question I want to ask, and I'm curious as to how many people are going to know the answer um, or, or be able to even respond. How many of you have heard the term digital native before? You've heard the term digital natives. Seriously? Wow. Or maybe I'm just so relevant and you guys are all behind the times. <laughs> okay, so a digital native is this, and there are many digital natives in the room. A digital native is simply someone whose reality has primarily been formed by a digital world. A digital native is someone who's never really known a world without technology and, and internet and accessibility that everything is in their pocket. My kids are digital natives. They will grow up not knowing a world of Game Boys and Super Nintendo um, where it was like basic like technology, but it didn't keep you in your room uh, you know, 24-7. That's what my kids will grow up knowing. A digital native is somebody who, who, is, who has only ever known technology. The only reality that, it, that they know has been shaped by technology. Now, some of you 
if you, I, I would say anyone who got a cell phone before you're 16, um, you are a digital native. How many digital natives do we have in the room? Any, any digital natives in the room? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Some of you are like, like I'm embarrassed. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. We still love you. Now, how many of you would just by definition, and you're going you're gonna to hear this, you're never going to ha- have heard this term, but you're going to know it's you. How many of you are analog natives? Any analog natives? You remember having to use two hands to put the disc on the reader so you could listen to music back in the olden days? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you were analog natives. That's a term I made up, but it makes sense. It's people who were not, their realities were not necessarily primarily shaped by technology. Now, I would consider myself kind of sandwiched in between. Like, I, I didn't grow up with an iPod, but I did grow up with an anti-skip CD player that had 45 cent or 45 second anti-skip protection. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And you, you knew you were cool when you would show your friends, watch this, put these headphones on, listen to the music, and you hit your CD player and it doesn't skip. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You knew you were cool. And then the Sony headphones that were over the ears and went behind your neck were super cool. I remember Sam Schaefer, he had one on the bus and everyone was like, where'd you get those headphones? He's like, I've been saving up for a long time. Like that was, that's the world that, that I knew. I would, I would term it as perhaps a, a Napster native. Anyone remember Napster when Napster came out? Late 90s, early 2000s, it was a file sharing program. And uh, what you could do is you could download music from anywhere. You could download any music. And before you had to go to the record store, you had to go to, you know, to the, the, the TV department at Fred Meyer to buy the latest CD. And you hoped that you were able to find your copy when you would look in alphabetical order for that CD. That was the world that I grew up in. But the Napster comes in. And in my formative years, Napster really shaped my, those high school years. I remember my friend Ruben. Um, Ruben had something that really set him apart from everybody else in high school. While we all had, um, we had dial-up modems, he had a cable modem. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like the 14 or the 28, whatever. It's like, I, I don't know how to make the noise. I made it a little bit better for service. Is that it? It's like, and it was like this kind of this piercing noise. And, and then your mom would pick up the phone to call someone. You'd say, Mom, I'm downloading a song. It was like 80% done. And she's like, well, I'm using the phone to do what phones are supposed to do. You're saying, Mom, move into the technological world. The world is changing. Stop calling people. <laughs> and, and I remember my friend Ruben, he got a cable modem. And the cable modem was the game changer. And the cable modem enabled you to, instead of being like me, if I wanted to download a song, I would get up early in the morning before school, I would find the song, I would start downloading, I'd go eat breakfast, I'd go off to school, I would think about that song all day, I'd come home and check the progress of that song, because you know it's still downloading. And it's, it's about 60% there, so I have dinner, I go to bed, and it's like 80%, I wake up the next morning, and now I've got the song in my hand. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But Ruben got a cable modem, and he could download albums in minutes. So Napster comes along. And everyone at school started to find out that Ruben Rodriguez had a cable modem. And he had this rewritable CD thing where he went and bought like a thousand burnable discs. And he started telling people about it. And over a few weeks' time, he began to make hundreds of dollars per week in selling mixes and CDs 
to friends who wanted them. They'd say, hey, I want the new 50 Cent album. Don't worry, 10 bucks, I got you. I want a mix. Here's all the songs that I want. I, I got you. I remember one girl at one point walking up to my friend Ruben with a $100 bill and a list of the 10 CDs that she wanted. And he was at 15 years old making a killing in high school to the point where the, the, the school had to shut it down because this, this was a game changer. Napster and file sharing and high-speed internet, it started to change the way that we related to technology. Technology used to be a thing. Now these things brought the tech to our doorstep. It changed jobs. It changed careers. It changed economies. It changed the game. It changed everything. It changed the conversation around ethics and the power and the purpose and the need and the dangers of technology. And it brought technology from being this thing out there to being something that was in our pockets and it would change reality as we know it. Now, I'm not actually dogging on this. I'm just acknowledging it. Because you and I now live in a world where we expect technology to just be something that serves us, right? We would be now what we would call as digital natives, where our reality that we currently live in is informed and shaped by technology. I could walk up to probably 99% of you and I could say, what is your favorite show to Netflix? And I might not even mean on the Netflix platform, it might be on Hulu, it might be on Amazon Prime, it might be on Comcast, it might even be on Dish Network. Some of you who are analog natives still got a dish on your roof and you still do that. Like I saw a commercial the other day, we were making fun of it. I don't know where I'm going with this, but we saw a commercial the other day and it's a Dish TV or like a direct TV commercial and it's like, I can have on demand and live TV at the same time. It's like, yo, people have had Comcast for like two decades. This is old news. And it's funny because we now just expect these realities that we've inherited to just be common. It's normal. We speak about this, it's just kind of a regular thing. The language has changed. So we expect instant streaming, and we expect high-speed internet, and we expect it all to be free. This is not negative, this is just a thing. And the point here is that our Native language, if you will, it has changed. And Paul in this passage is writing to the Philippian church for a couple of reasons. One is to address some divisions in the church, which was one of the primary issues of the early church. But another reason that he's, he's writing to them is because they have some, unknowingly, they have some hidden allegiances. They, they've, they've given their loyalty over to some of the, the ways and the systems of the world, and without even knowing it, they've begun to change how they live and how they talk and how they act, so much so to where they become a little bit more aligned with the world than they are with Jesus. And he writes to them, and he says this, he pokes at it here, he says, and I'll paraphrase, many people are today living as enemies of the cross. Destruction is their, their de destiny. They worship desire. Shame is their glory. Now, you might be thinking, I'm a Christian. Uh, yeah, man, I, I, you know, those people, those, those people who don't know God. But what we don't realize that Paul is actually doing is he's, a, he's subversively kind of giving you and I a jab. It's not directing the attention to those outside of the church. He's not writing to those outside of the church. He's writing to the church, and he's wanting the church to understand that there are two types of people in the world. 
There are enemies of the cross, and there are citizens of heaven. Not three, not five, just two. There are two types of people in that day and today. You are either an enemy of the cross, or you are a citizen of heaven. Jesus follower or not, you can be an enemy of the cross. How is you be like he describes, that your mind is fixed on external things? And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves pointing the finger out there to all of the issues that we are seeing at play. And Paul, if he were here today, just like the Spirit of God is saying to the church, yo, it ain't them, it's you. You've become an enemy of the cross without even realizing it. So Paul writes this and he says, essentially there's two types of people, enemies of the cross and citizens of heaven. Now that word citizen is a political term. And it means, literally, it means our politics. Our politics are from heaven. The way that we relate to the state. And that's what politics means. It's how the individual relates to the state. And when the individual gives primary allegiance to the state, it is then entitled to its protection. So if in these days you wanted to get by in society and in culture, what you had to do is you had to be the kind of person who the contours of your life and the way that you lived and act and talked and breathed and everything that you did was in alignment with the culture you were living in. And so for a Christian to get by without raising any eyebrows meant for that Christian to at times be tempted to withhold what they believe to be true, what they know to be true, their primary citizenship. And Paul writes and he says, yo, guys, hey, I don't know if you realized it, but there's two kinds of people in the world. There's enemies of the cross and there's citizens of heaven. There's citizens of earth. There's citizens of heaven. And it seems like you've gotten caught up a little bit because you're starting to look a little bit more like the world and a little bit less like Jesus. And I'm not here to throw shade or make anybody look bad or feel bad or feel shame in any way. But if we're not careful, we will be like them unknowingly giving our allegiance to the politic of the world. And it may not be the state literally, but it's greed and it's power and it's influence and it's sexual freedom and it's self-indulgence and being liked and alignment with the culture and it's a me first kind of thing. And Paul is, he's noticing, he's like, yo, like the world's language has become your primary language. And just like in the digital revolution where everything that we began to talk and think and look at and understand about reality becomes primarily shaped by the technology around us. And in the same way, if we are not careful, the culture around us and the fear of it and the systems will begin to shape us more than Jesus does. And you and I are called to be people, one of two. We're either citizens of heaven or we are enemies of the cross. And if I'm being really honest, there have been plenty of times more than I care to count where in my life I would say one thing, but I am in actuality, I'm acting out as an enemy of the mission of God, the kingdom of God, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, God's not mad when we speak culture. God's not mad when we speak business. He's not mad when we speak conservative. He's not mad when we speak liberal. He's not mad when we speak, you know, ideologies. He's not mad when we 
speak, influence. He's not mad when we look, talk, act similar to the world. What he's wanting, though, is our allegiance first. Like, God, God I, I think we, we really, like, we're afraid to have opinions sometimes. Either we, we either get lost in them or we're afraid to have them because we think that it, it's like God's not, God wants you to have your opinions. You're all different. We're all different. We're all weird. We all have got our opinions. We've got all our ideas. But what he wants most of all is he wants your allegiance Jesus died so that you would give the whole of your life and see everything that you see about the future and about your current reality, that you would filter it through the lens of the cross, not the other way around. And what we're seeing in culture today is it's the other way around. And we're looking at Jesus through the lens of what culture has brought to the doorstep. And we're saying Jesus doesn't match up. It's right. He doesn't. He was never meant to fit into your box. But we're trying to fit him into our box. And God is saying, you've got it upside down. You've got to flip it. You can't look at the future. You can't look at all of these. You've got to look through the lens of me. And here's what he says. Enemies of the cross are those whose minds are set on earthly things. In other words, in Christ... Or he goes on to say, sorry, but our citizenship is in heaven. And this is what I want to challenge us with this morning. Is that when we are in Christ, we begin to speak a new first language. When we are in Jesus, when we put our faith in God, when we trust God with our lives, when we say yes to Jesus, it changes where our primary language is. You following me, right? So if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, your first identity is not your sexuality, it's not your gender, it's not the color of your skin, it's not your ideology, it's not your political affiliation, it's not even your family. You are first and foremost a Jesus person than everything else. That is counterculture right there. I just said that, and some people would come at me and say, no, you're wrong. I am first this and then a Christian. And if that is the case, if that is your mentality, you go on with your bad self. I just want to remind you, you are an enemy of the cross. Because anyone whose primary identity is not Jesus, whether in or out of the church, is an enemy of the cross. I'm not here to shame you for it. I'm just here to tell you what scripture says. There's two two kinds of people in the world, enemies of the cross and they're citizens of heaven. I want to be a citizen of heaven, even though I know within me there are still pieces of me that rage against the cross. But thanks be to God and his grace that when I am not enough, he is... But so many of us, what we've done is we've believed in Jesus and we would say we've become citizens of heaven, but heaven language has become our secondary, almost forgotten language. And we believe, but we are full of doubt. So when there's a a disruption, where do our minds go? Lack, doubt, and fear. And God is like, yo, I keep saying yo, yo. Have you not read about all the things that I've done throughout human history? Have you not read that I put a pillar of fire at night to guide my people? 
and a cloud by day. Have you not read that I brought down manna from heaven, that every breath and every bite would sustain my people? Have you not read that I parted the Red Sea? Have you not read that I rose my son from the grave? Am I not enough? But what we do, what do we do, what do we do? We, we oh yeah, I believe God. <laughs> but man, I got a lot of doubts. And we surrender to them, right? Like, we won't surrender to faith, but we will easily lay down to doubt. Like, we won't surrender to belief, but we will absolutely give complete control of judgment to our minds and gossip and slander and hatred. And we say, I'm a person of Jesus. No, you're an enemy of the cross. I'm not going to mince words, but I'm not going to point the finger so much as I'm saying that you and I act as enemies of the cross, when we say that we believe and yet we are full of doubt. James describes it as a double-minded person, unstable in all that they do, meaning they can't decide which feet, which, which plate they, they want to put their feet at. Like, where do you want to be? Are you a person of heaven? Or is your primary citizenship the systems of the world? You've got to decide. There's only two options, heaven or earth. Which one do you want to identify with? So we say we believe, but we doubt. We say we're blessed, but we live in lack and scarcity. Say we want to serve, but our God that we truly worship is our time and our plans. We want to give, but everything's got to fit into a box. And we snuff out the spirit of generosity. Why? Because we are enemies of the cross. We are not citizens of heaven. Because citizens of heaven understand where their primary identity is and everything is then filtered through that, not the other way around. Now you might say, Taylor, that's really harsh. But I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm simply saying that this is me on an often kind of basis where if I'm being honest as much as I say I am a citizen of heaven, it has become my forgotten language. I was challenged the other day to just believe for something in faith. And immediately, as I'm, I was driving right over here in Covington by McDonald's, now part of it, there was a temptation. I do like a double cheeseburger every once in a while. I chose to, to not do that. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But I'm driving by, and, and just something comes to my mind. And I'm like, that was a seed thought a long time ago. I haven't thought about that in a while. And so I start to kind of pray about it. And then everything in my mind tr tries to reason my way out of what I had just prayed for. And I challenged myself in that moment, like, no, like, I don't know what the future holds, but what I do know is that God can, so I'm going to believe that he might. I know that God is able, so I'm going to believe that he might do this, and it might look exactly how I picture, and it might be upside down from that, but what I'm not going to do is reason my way out of it and put God in a box that he came to destroy. What's happened is faith. And our earthly, or sorry, our heavenly citizenship, our first language has become actually our forgotten language. Read what Paul says. As enemies of the cross, he goes on to say, their minds are set on earthly things. And the heart of Paul's message is your first language reveals your true citizenship. The question I ask today is, what is your citizenship? What's your primary identity? Are you an American first? Are you a conservative first? Are you a Democrat first? Are you a 
pro and anti whatever insert issue here first? Are you short, tall, black, white, young, old first? Or are you a first citizen of heaven and everything else comes second? Because I'm afraid that in this culture, what, what the pressure has been is to not forsake God. It's to make God second to everything else. Like nobody's asking you to say no to Jesus. Like nobody's asking that. Like literally almost no one, unless you are in the Middle East. And in that case, absolutely. But in our society right here, nobody's asking you to forsake Jesus. But you know what? It is a little bit more tyrannical and subversive. Because the invitation is on a daily basis when you get this thing out. Where's your allegiance? What shapes your thinking, your thoughts, your process, your morality? Is it what you see here? Is it what you read? Is it what you get up in the morning and you touch your phone to see how many notifications are, are on there to get the dopamine hit, but also check, did any disaster worldwide happen as I was sleeping? Anyone ever done that? You're afraid to open your phone because you wonder what news notifications? Were there any shootings last night? Were there any disasters? Was there an earthquake in another nation? Was there an explosion in Afghanistan? Was there another, and what, what do we do? And I'm not diminishing those. In fact, those are important that you stay informed. But all of a sudden, what happens is this is the first thing. And what God is saying, yo, like, this happened. This is real. But would you put it away? Because I got something to say. Because I'm your king. I'm your Lord. I'm the leader of your life. I'm the one who saved you, and I've got something to say. But if you're not careful, and if I'm not careful, fear will be the lens through which we look at Jesus, not Jesus being the lens through which we look at fear. Doubt is the lens. Lack is the lens. Past failures of people who were in your world becomes the lens at which you look at future relationships that you don't even know you're going to have. He treated me that way, so everyone will. They treated me, they, they did this, they, they went against me, they talked this about me, they, uh, that happened here, and so I can look at the trends, it's probably going to happen again. What do we do? We go back to the way that things used to be, and we unknowingly are swearing our allegiance to a earthly mentality when Paul's reminding us what God wants us to know is your allegiance is first to the kingdom. Your allegiance is, is to Jesus first. And when you know that, you begin to submit all of that to this. I know I don't see it, but God's still good. I know I don't understand the future, but I know God's in it. Not only that, he's in my now, and he's obviously been in my past because I'm still standing and breathing. So if he's been faithful, he will be faithful. I know God's got me, and so as I look at the future, what I don't know is not what I'm building on. What I'm building on is the fact that I was dead, God made me alive, and he's gonna sustain me for every breath that I take in the future. Is anybody with me? And what we've got to do, 
So we got to put our stake in the ground and say, you know what? I know where my primary allegiance is. What I don't know is will the system fail? Will the nation crumble? Will those people be exposed? Will this thing be justified? Will my family come back together the way I want it? Will this job come through? I do not know, but what I do know is that God has been and will be there, and when we primarily make our allegiance to God, when we clarify that, we stick our stake in the ground and say, though everything else can fail, God will never fail me, and I'm going to stay faithful to him. And this is what you've got to do. Number one, what do you do? You, you clarify your allegiance. And some of you have unknowingly given your allegiance to conservatism. Some of you have unknowingly given your allegiance to your social media, your influence. Some of you have given it to whatever it might be, progressivism. You name the issue of the day. It is not the issue. But you've given it your allegiance. And when Jesus lines up with it, you are so good with God. But the moment he disagrees is the moment you have trouble and you start to lose your faith. Like, oh, I don't know. I got doubts. No, you don't. You're just, you just need to acknowledge where your allegiance is. You're an enemy of the cross. Say it out loud. Hear yourself say it and realize, oh, wait, I have this old language that I used to speak. Maybe I should get back. Maybe I should brush up on it again because I know when I do, man, something comes out of me and I start to change and things, things shift and I, I start to see differently. It's funny, I, I played drums for many years and maybe, I'll, maybe I should start playing again. They're laughing. I was, I was pretty good. I'm, I won't. <laughs> um, but it's funny because drums, if you look at it like a language, I, I played drums for many years and, and, um, and I remember when I, whenever I pick up drumsticks again, it's usually been many months since I last did. And I remember last year we had our women's conference here and I, I, I played for one of the morning sessions. They, they duped me into it. And so I play and by the end of it, I had all these blisters already. And they were blisters where I used to have calluses. And it used to be second nature for me. It used to be normal. It used to be the language that I spoke. I played drums. It was regular. I had the rhythm. I had the chops. I could do all the things. But as I spent years away from it, when I got back into it, some of it came naturally, but some of it wasn't second nature anymore because it had been suppressed for so long. And some of us, it's not that we've forgotten the language, it's just that we've suppressed it. And here's, let, let me warn you and encourage you. When, you. when you realign your citizenship, you're gonna get some blisters because the way that you've been living, full of doubt, full of hatred, full of fear, judgment, lack of compassion, Anxiety, you name it. Confidence in your job, confidence in yourself, whatever, relation, I don't know. Is you've been putting all of your primary identity in things and in others and in people, and when you change it over to your primary citizenship and say, God, it's you first and nothing else, you're gonna start to feel the rub. But let me encourage you, it's worth it. Because when I start playing again, my biceps get bigger. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> like I start, I start learning. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is coming naturally to me. And I can do the, the paradiddles and the triplets and, the, and all of these different things. And, and, and it becomes what it always has been. The language I was meant to speak. The language you were created to speak is actually in you. 
What God wants to do is wake it up, but you've got to clarify your allegiance. Get the stake in the ground. Say, Jesus first, nothing else. Everything else can be lost, but if I've got God, I've got everything that I need. She can leave me. He can leave me. They can walk out on me. I can lose the job. I can lose the house, lose the money, lose the stuff. Things can go broken. I can be full of doubt, and yet in the same breath say, God, though I doubt, I've got faith that you are bigger than it, so I worship you. I trust you. You are faithful even when I am not. So I'm looking to you, the author, the perfecter of my faith. I'm walking with you. When I get weary and lose heart, I'm going to keep my eyes on you because you did the same thing. This is what we do, but we've got to clarify our allegiance. Where's your allegiance? Number two, you got to let Jesus form your ideology, not the other way around. This is a challenge. I'll say it this way. We don't look at Jesus through the lens of our ideology. We shape our ideologies through the lens of the cross. We don't look at Jesus through the lens of our ideology. We look at our ideology. We shape our ideology. We form our ideology. We see it through the lens of the finished work on the cross. And let that inform how we see everything. It's going to make you more conservative and more liberal at the same time. Let me challenge you with that one. What does that even mean? No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. Gets the people going. That was a reference, and some of you got it, and you're saying, Taylor, you are culturally relevant, and I say, yes, I am. The rest of you, you are an analog native, and, uh, but I can't tell you how many people left churches and or came back into churches, not because they were drawn back into Jesus, but because the pastor started preaching what they always maybe never admitted but knew was their God. So they worship justice and they worship systems and they worship politicians and they worship ideas. And when the pastor or the leader or the movement person, when they start preaching their gospel, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, man, I'm good with Jesus. I just want to encourage and challenge you. You are an enemy of the cross. You need to get back to what your allegiance is. It is, not, it is not even a pastor. It is not even the church. As much as I am all for you staying loyal to the church, it is Jesus and nothing else. That is it. And what has happened is people have co-opted Jesus onto their mission. And so as long as Jesus agrees with the mission, I'm good with keeping Jesus on board. But the moment that my mission starts to look a little bit ugly and it shames people that are not a part of it, insert it here. Again, I'm trying to make you a little bit more liberal and more conservative at the same time today. You're welcome. What we have done is we've looked at Jesus and culture and the kingdom of God through the lens of everything that has fallen at our doorstep and God is saying, I want it the other way around. Let me be the lens with which you look at race. Let my compassion fill you so much to where you do whatever you do in love, not in an idea and trying to keep your idea and your truth that you've known the way that you want it because you don't want to be comfortable or uncomfortable because comfort's your God and you're an, you're an enemy of the cross. So get my spirit on the inside of you, get my compassion on the inside of you and go into the world with that lens rather than the other way around. 
Some of us have gotten so much more convinced by every day in what we already know to be true, and you might even be true. But if we're not careful, the thing that was true on its own becomes empty and void and counterproductive because it was never God. The systems will come and go but God will remain. So if I'm going to stake my claim, it's going to be Jesus. When Paul wrote to the church, he said, man, when I came to you guys, I didn't come knowing everything. There's a lot more I don't know than I do. But the one thing that I knew that I will not mince words on, I came to you knowing the cross. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what I will build my life on. Here's what I am saying. Is you're either a citizen of heaven or you're an enemy of the cross. And I would venture to say that most, if not all of us in this room, do not care to leave this building and be an enemy of the cross. And if that is the case, then there are no options other than giving the whole allegiance of your life, your job, your parenting, your relationships, your future planning, your ideas, your ideals, your politics, your opinions, your struggles. You give it all to Jesus. God is not here to make your life better. God's not here to give you better thinking so that you can just think better and be better. God is here to take the whole of your life. Jesus was not messing around when he said, you wanna find your life? Lose it, lose it. You wanna lose your life? If you're willing to lose your life, you'll find me. You'll find life, life more abundantly. But the moment that you want, you aim, you try and manufacture and do things to keep your life, is the moment that you've signed your death certificate. Jesus doesn't want part, wants all. Doesn't want your future, he wants your past too. Doesn't want your past, he wants your future too. He wants your now, he wants your ideas, he wants your hidden stuff. He wants your addictions, he wants your faith. He wants those ideas that he placed in you as a little kid that you didn't realize that was a seed that he put there. It's like, I put that there too. You trust me for it? Would you surrender that to me? Would you believe me for bigger, for better, for more? I just believe that the days that we are in as the church, you and I cannot afford to give God anything less than everything. Jesus, I, 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 I know it's a journey, it's a process. We're all on it. But God's invitation every day, still the same. Wanna come after me? Die to yourself, take up your cross, follow me. God's invitation is clear. And I think if we respond, not only will he remind, him, remind you like, yo, like, 
still faithful. I got you. Don't you think that I, I know every hair on your head? I know, I know the intricate parts of you you don't even know. I know those desires. I know those struggles. I know that pain. You can't articulate it, but you feel it. I'm with you. I know all of it. I got you. dream you got, don't let it die. I put it there. I ain't reversing it. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you're in here today. If you're being real with yourself, your allegiance has been may not have made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've never started that journey and maybe for some of you, you've been in church your whole life. But if you're being honest, your ideology has crept in and really tried to shape your framework for how you see the world. I think what God's inviting some of you to do is to baptize your opinion in the cross. God might be calling some of you to just delete your Facebook. God might call, be calling you, some of you to get a flip phone. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, but your allegiance, and there are things that are vying for it every day. And God is beckoning you to respond to him and say, give me everything. I want your sexuality. I want your opinions. I want your ideas. I want your husband. I want your wife. I want your marriage. I want your kids. I want your education. I want your future plans. I want your career. I want your ministry. I want your life. I want your fears. I want your ambitions. I died for it. Let me tell you, when you give it to me, you will not regret it. So in this room, you're here today and you say, you know what? My allegiance has been off. My first language is starting to look a little, a little bit off. I want to get back to that first language. Would you just lift your hand just really quickly so I can see you? You just want to realign, align yourself with Jesus. I'm raising my hand with you. Man, this is a daily struggle. I don't know a Christian who doesn't need this. Okay, awesome, you can put your hands down. Here's what I want to do. I want to invite everybody to stand with me. We're going to sing, and as we worship, here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer up our, our allegiance to God. This is why the Church of Jesus Christ has been singing for thousands of years now. The reason we sing is because it is in defiance with everything that is vying for our allegiance. You got culture that is really wanting your allegiance. You got political parties wanting your allegiance. You got your cell phone wanting your allegiance. 
and what we do when we worship, when we lift our hands, when we sing at the top of our lungs, what we're saying is once again, God, I re-surrender to you. I re-give everything to you. And God, even though yesterday is lost, Today is here and the future is still coming. So God, with everything that I've got, I will worship you. And in fact, God, as I give it up to you, God, as I praise you, the blessings and the wisdom and the ideas and the hope, it all begins to come down. So I wanna challenge you, would you lift your hands all over the room? And can we worship God with everything that we've got? You hold it all together. You are the God of my present and you are the God of my future. So I worship you, God. I glorify your name because you are worthy. And I put my hope, I put my trust, I put my faith in you because you, Jesus, are the only one who is worthy. Come on, can we worship with everything that we've got and surrender to God? God of my present, God of my future, you are worthy, God. here to proclaim as we worship and as we live that your faithfulness remains. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. And God, may our lives declare our allegiance. May the meditation of our hearts and the words of our mouth declare our allegiance. May what we go to in the morning before we go to anything else, before we go to our phones, declare our allegiance. May what we lay our heads down to declare our allegiance. May what we watch when we are in private declare our allegiance. God, may the way that we talk about others declare our allegiance. May the way that we love our enemies declare our allegiance. God, may the way that we feel about people and the way that we think about them and even in our own hearts privately declare our allegiance. May everything that we do and say declare our allegiance. In Jesus' name. Our prayer partners are going to be up front here, ready to pray with you. You need prayer, ready to say yes to Jesus. I know we're over. 
we're a bit over. There's less than 10 minutes left of live stream, um, which means we're over. My last point was this, I didn't give it to you, but it's go and do whatever you do, not in fear, but do it in love and do it in faith. Do what you do in faith and do what you do in love. Whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Whether you wear a mask or you don't, you better be doing it in love and you better be doing it in faith. You better not be refusing in hate. Some of you needed to hear that. Some of you are so caught up in your ideology that you can't even love people whose opinions are a little bit different. Let me receive that for myself. May we do everything we do in faith and in love. God bless you guys as you go. We will see you next Sunday.